0: Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season two, episode five, the real episode five, not like our Bake Episode 5, as our intro said last week, and today we are going to be talking about Hitch from 2005. As always, I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Zachary Orts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? I am hanging in there. We are getting close to the holiday break here where we're recording. By this time, I think most people are probably by this time when people are hearing it most people are probably on their holiday break but yeah looking forward to some time of not having to work and maybe we'll be able to watch some movies in there and crank out a few podcasts and yeah should be nice and relaxing
1: yeah it's coming down to the end of the year for me and you know it's always stressful end of the semester stuff but you know we're good to go it's uh we'll figure it out
0: nice uh, so let's jump into hitch here from to, as I said from 2005. You're the one with personal history on this movie, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your where you've seen it, how many times you've seen it and yeah where you're at Yeah so
1: at. I watched Hitch. I watched it I didn't see it in theaters I don't think no but I saw it pretty soon after it came out so it must have been in the summer of 2005. And I had been living in South America in Chile from part of 2003 to the end of summer of 2005. So summer 2003 through summer 2005. And I had not seen very many movies at all when I got back from Chile. I essentially have a hole (laughs) in that two years. And I was abroad before I ended up Uh, going to college. So I saw this kind of as I was getting ready to go back up to college. And yeah, it's one of the earlier movies that I saw after I got back. And I love romantic comedies. And so I was excited to watch this one. And I also really loved Will Smith. And I had seen a lot of his stuff pre 2003. So I was excited to watch this one and see what he did. I remember seeing commercials about this one on the television and so i knew kind of it was on my list of things to watch and i really enjoyed it when it came out and i've since watched it it's become one of these films that i know is not as good as (laughs) maybe i enjoy it i don't know if that makes sense
0: yeah of course it does um yeah i think we've all got those movies and that's good it's good to I think it's important to be able to recognize that there's there can be and sometimes is a difference between things that are good or and in good meaning like well-crafted or having a high level of craft and things that you enjoy
1: yeah for sure and I think a big part of why I enjoyed this one so much is when I was in Chile like I was living in another country I was living in and I was speaking another language and I wasn't really doing a ton of socializing at the time period and so I was dating when I came back and doing those kinds of things and going to college and I don't know, trying to figure out life, a whole bunch of different things. And so the themes of this film really hit me in a sweet spot because of that. Like it really spoke hmm. to me at the time period as I was trying to figure out, it, it, you know, a lot of the kinds of things that this movie is treating and trying to understand and like trying to understand yourself and all of those kinds of things. So I really liked it at the time period. And I've since gone and back and watched it several times, uh, probably like five or six times, and I just love it every time and a lot of the things that are in this movie I've just uh, held on to like it's a movie that I quote a lot mm-hmm. and I love it And so I was excited to I was excited to talk about it even though I know that you know it's not one that is generally seen as the, this tremendous classic or anything like that.
0: Yeah, sure. And I think that makes sense the. Romantic comedies or rom-coms are, uh, they're certainly movies that if you see them (laughs) at a time when you're in the, like going through a dating process or in the throes of first love or looking for love, then they're going to be, they have a really good chance of being pretty effective on you because you're sort of primed to buy into the emotional emotional state of that movie
1: yes this is true though to be fair i have liked romantic comedies at every point of my life i just Mm -hmm. love them i love romantic comedies and i should probably talk about that i my one of my favorite romantic comedies growing up is you've got mail and it's just i love that film so much and it's the favorite film of my mom and i to watch together so we would watch that together all the time And I loved romantic comedies growing up, and I've seen a lot of romantic comedies. I love Nora Ephron comedies, especially You've Got Mail, and uh, Joe vs. the Volcano, and Sleepless in Seattle, all the Tom, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan ones. And I've seen a lot of other romantic comedies, and I love the genre, and I go out of my way to watch romantic comedies and mm-hmm. I, I try to stay current. You know, there's always so many coming out, but I, I try to see a few every year. Uh, I've seen, I think, three or four romantic comedies this year, and none of them were very good, and I love them all. So uh, that's my standing on the genre.
0: Cool. So my... I didn't really know anything about this movie going in. I knew that you liked it. I knew that... I'm pretty sure after we stopped recording last week maybe it was on the podcast, I can't remember, you had said that this movie does a bit of a deconstruction of the magical Negro trope or tries to flip, that on, flip it on its head. And then even though I did not, I tried to, I was not able to quickly flip past the synopsis on HBO Max quickly enough. So I saw the phrase uh that will smith played a date doctor so that was all that i knew going in which i guess meant that i expected there to be some sort of supernatural element to what hitch was able to do oh no um yeah which i led you astray uh, i mean i i don't know that you did and i don't know that it affected it, it becomes apparent within like the first 30 seconds of the movie that that's not what is going on? So, I, I don't think you primed me incorrectly. Okay. Or, I mean, you did, but I don't think my viewing was affected by it. Oh, as an aside, I have been reprimanded that we have not been, or maybe just me, have not been precise enough when referring to HBO Max as HBO Max. And sometimes we've been a little lax and have referred to it as HBO. And there is a difference between HBO and HBO Max. So, HBO is the Channel and anything that happens live on the channel and HBO Max is anything through the streaming service. Correct. Yeah. Which uh, I didn't know. So, so shout out to my buddy Evan for letting us know. Thanks, Evan. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for keeping us honest. Yep. All right. Let's talk a little bit about where <laughs> where this movie lands. Uh, so this came out in February of two thousand five and. Of course, as we know, I guess we haven't really talked about it, but February is generally where movies that are, it's sort of like a dead month for movies, right? Yes. It's where they put the movies that they don't expect to really do well, because it's just in this void of not summer blockbusters and also not... It's going to be very difficult for movies to compete for Oscars in that slot.
1: Yes, it's generally. um, And the one exception to like where movies go to die is that uh, around the weekend uh, or around the week of Thanksgiving or not Thanksgiving. Valentine's Day, you'll typically have Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, similar to Thanksgiving. Around the time of Valentine's Day, you'll typically have a romantic comedy come out. And this one came out February 11th. So it's obvious they were targeting for Valentine's Day. That doesn't mean that they usually target good movies at Valentine's Day. Um, (laughs) It's just, you know, you're trying to hit usually a romantic comedy right at the Valentine's Day time to try to kind of boost up your sales. It doesn't historically work very well. That month is just a dead zone for the box office um, almost always.
0: Well, it's just a little rough because it's sort of like who's the target who wants to go watch a rom-com on valentine's day because generally like at least i don't know any couples who their valentine's day date is to go to a movie or to do a movie night i'm sure they exist if that's you go ahead and (laughs) write in and let us know uh but most people you know they want to go out for dinner and then like have a have a nice night or do do something coupley and then people who are uncoupled generally have a pretty strong disdain for valentine's day and our (laughs) commercial commercial country that we live in trying to tell them that they need to be coupled and they're wrong for not being coupled so it's sort of like yeah i don't know who's who the target demo is if you're trying to target a Valentine's Day release, yeah, for your rom com.
1: I don't know. I think possibly they're going for like folks that are a little bit lower income, and so when Valentine's Day rolls around, like the biggest thing they can splurge for is to go to a movie. Um, mm-hmm. So that might be kind of it, and it might be a big part of why that kind of week often, you know, it's it seems to tar- target very broad audiences with the humor and whatnot uh in general with films uh and it's a lot of films that i just don't enjoy as well um typically i when i've gone through years where i'm trying to watch a lot of movies a lot of times i just skip the month of february and i just you know just write it off for the entire year because i know there's very few things that are going to be good that comes out at the time
0: yeah makes sense So let's talk a little bit about what happened in 2005. And we pulled a little bit of stuff from late 2004 just because this was so early in the year. So as seems to to have happened a lot with this podcast, we are right after a presidential election. And so in November of 2004, George W. Bush... Won re-election and then would be inaugurated in January of two thousand five. So just a month before this movie came out, <laughs> the I voted in the... that election.
1: Just to be clear,
0: oh, was that was that your first election you voted in?
1: It is not the first election I voted in. I voted in. Let's see. Wait, was it? That's the first presidential election I voted in. Yeah, yeah. I did not vote was... for the winner, unfortunately. So. It was the
0: last presidential election I did not vote in. Yeah. At least until I die, or they decide Jews aren't allowed to vote anymore.
1: Which you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> it's a, we might be wow, on that this track.
0: podcast went to a dark went to a dark place already, huh?
1: Yeah, we need we need something to cheer us up, uh, like a romantic comedy.
0: Ooh. Uh, well, I do have something really good that happened in October of two thousand four, which is that the curse of the Bambino was finally broken. The Red Sox finally won the World Series, and they did so after rallying against the Yankees in the championship series, after they went down three games to zero, and then for the first time ever in a seven game series in Major League Baseball. I think it has happened one more time since, but I didn't actually look it up. the yeah, so the first time ever they came back and swept the final four games to win that series and then went on to break a what 1925 yeah, nearly 90 year old curse. Yep. So, was the trade in 25? I don't remember. Sometime around then, sometime in the early 20s, early to mid 20s, um. and then so. Hmm? Yeah, good for
1: the Red Sox. That, that was remarkable for them. And everybody wanted it so badly. And then, uh, you know, afterwards, uh, no one liked the Red Sox anymore, unfortunately. So Well,
0: then we all realized, like, okay, the curse is broken. Oh, wait, we hate Boston sports fans. Boston sports fans are really obnoxious. And, you know, <laughs> it takes <laughs> almost a century of not winning the World Series for people to root for you. But then, poof, it's all gone. <laughs>
1: it's all gone instantly.
0: Um, apologize, apologies
1: to any Boston uh, sports fans. Uh, not too much apologies. I, slight apologies. So I don't think
0: the apologies are necessary because I think Boston sports fans wear it as a badge of honor. You're probably right. I, yeah. I think they know, understand, and relish the fact that other other sports fans don't don't care for them.
1: Fair enough. In
0: August of 2004, so right just before that, Google went public which we only mentioned because <laughs> there is a relatively prominent Google sighting in this movie.
1: Yes, it's he looks up his date on Google, and they specifically talk about Googling
0: their dates. So it's a pretty big deal. Very important. Gotta Google your dates. And then I'll just run down a few a few big things that popped out to me from 2005. In February, Avatar The Last Airbender premiered in March, the first episode of the New Who, the Doctor Who reboot, aired. And then this was kind of mind-blowing to me. In April, the first ever YouTube video is uploaded. And that, when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, they don't mention YouTube in this movie. And YouTube would just become such a like it's just such a part of our lives now. You know, it's not like it's mentioned in every movie. I think it's probably not mentioned in most movies, but it is just the ability to find videos of basically whatever you want on demand. That we—that's a world we live in now, and it would <laughs> that ball would start rolling just a couple months after this movie came out. And this
1: movie would probably be quite different uh, in a world of YouTube because people would have taken videos of the dates with Allegra Cole and posted them on YouTube, and they would have shown that in this film, almost guaranteed.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. Which means
1: that this must have been not too long after, you know, the Super Bowl fiasco where Justin Timberlake uh, ripped off Janet Jackson's shirt because that's why YouTube was created. The creator couldn't find videos of that and see Janet Jackson's exposed breast, so he made a whole site for it.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. Good call. Just the just the year before. So two thousand four was the <laughs> the infamous costume wardrobe malfunction. That was the verbiage they used.
1: Yes, the wardrobe malfunction.
0: And then in August of two thousand five was Hurricane Katrina, and then November of that year, Xbox three hundred and sixty was released. Big day, big day. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. All right, so that's that's the year of this movie. Do you have anything else you want to say about the time period there? This is our first movie that's really in a, in a world that's still reeling from 9-11, in a world that's still dealing with the aftermath of 9-11. It, it still hasn't really become like an afterthought. I feel like it probably can't become an afterthought until until Barack Obama is elected in 2008. But it doesn't, it didn't feel like it was hanging over the movie to me, even though it was almost all shot on location in New York.
1: Yeah, I, there's a few things that stood out to me. Like, there's a scene where they go to Ellis Island, and, um, you know, the when they shot this, You couldn't go to the Statue of Liberty, so uh, it made me think of that. And they would have been shooting this in 2003 and 2004, so Mm -hmm. probably it was a lot more on their mind shooting it than even when it came out. But I cannot imagine that people uh, did not think about this as they went, because I think it, it was just on the mind, present constantly.
0: Yeah, and it's obviously just something that's just so indelibly linked to life in new york city and shooting in new york city uh film shooting in new york city of course that yeah it's just hard hard not to think about yeah all right let's talk a little bit about our reaction to this movie do you want to go first or do you want me to go first i'll
1: go first so i watched this and i my whole family decided they wanted to watch it with me my spouse has seen this a few times and likes it uh the kids had not seen it so they wanted to watch it and it was a lot of fun watching it with them they got a kick out of the the jokes they they really thought it was funny and they were engaged with this story and really liked it i enjoyed watching it this time i still loved all the uh, loved all the jokes i guffawed heartily throughout the film uh though a part of me was still as i was watching it this time thinking about the podcast and, like, are people going to like this one? And what am I going to say about it? So I couldn't quite get all the way in the zone uh, with the mm-hmm. film as I watched it this time. I was I was looking at every scene from the angle of, like, am I enjoying it now? And what am I going to say about this? And, y- you know, couldn't get 100% out of my head with this one. But I did enjoy it. And there's a lot of things that I still love that, I, uh, that are some of my favorites still to this day.
0: Yeah. So I had a pretty interesting experience watching this movie. I think I enjoyed my watch. I think I liked it. I was entertained like I wasn't ever bored or wishing it was over. I did not laugh very much, but that's also... I've spent a lot of time like trying to diagnose why why and what I find funny in movies and TV shows and this movie really kind of made because there are just not a lot of movies that I've seen that I just laugh at or that I think are uproariously funny outside of movies that have so like I laugh a lot at the Marvel movies but I think that's sort of the same reason that I laugh a lot at a lot of the TV shows that I watch because I, I think I need like some sort of comfort with the characters and the world that allows me to feel comfortable enough to like get that surprise and laugh at them because I was trying to think of other movies that I've laughed at very much and they just I, th- I think I just can't get into the world enough to laugh at them. And so then I then I went down this little spiral of like, well, do I not like romantic comedies very much? And I think there is, I think there's certainly a sense that the specific rom com structure that you enjoy that's in this movie that's in You've Got Mail, the um, Sleepless in Seattle, I think that is something that I don't enjoy as much as you. But when I was looking at like my Flick chart. Crazy Rich Asians is my top rated romantic comedy and that's a movie that I absolutely love to pieces. So, not 100% sure what like what makes me laugh or why I find something funny. I did really really enjoy Will Smith in this movie. And I also enjoyed um who's the other male lead? Kevin James. Uh
1: yes, Kevin James as Albert Renelman. Yeah.
0: As, yeah, I also thought Kevin James did a really good job of being, like, someone that I felt for and was compassionate towards, even though he was, like, a doofus. So that kind of worked on me a lot, but I think, I think part of the problem for me with movies that are structured like this is I don't love—I get really nervous playing the— head game of is this a romantic grand sweeping gesture or is this stalking and that is just like a very nerve-wracking place for me to live (laughs) for a movie for the entire time and I just like can't get out of my head about it and unfortunately I feel like the more I was thinking about this movie as it went on the less I liked it. So I'm kind of interested to get into it with you and talk about some of the like places where I don't know if the movie was confused or if I I felt like the movie was confused and it easily could have been like I just didn't understand exactly where. Like I just didn't get it because I was too busy playing the stalker or romantic game in my head,
1: (laughs) which is fair. I mean, there's a few scenes in here that I think. Part of it is that some of the the scenes don't hold up super well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what are we at? Nearly 17 years later after this film. Yeah. Um, And some of it is just, you know, the the plot of this movie was kind of panned when it came out. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some issues with kind of uh, the writing and structure that probably some of those things are showing up. And then, you know, there's other things that are just standard or romantic comedy stuff that you probably just bounced off of. So it's probably a combination of those three things.
0: Yeah, but then there's also, like, at the risk of, like, not to just be negative about everything, because there's also a huge focus by, by Hitch, by Will Smith's character on, like, you have to listen to people. You can't just be trying to if you're a guy trying to date a woman, you can't just be trying to get into her pants. Like, you have to recognize her as a human. And that, especially after the opening of the movie, that sort of really surprised me. And I really, and we're not going to talk about it specifically, but I really enjoyed the scene with him and Vance. Yes. Yeah, Vance, right? Vance, where he slams um, the guy on
1: the table and whatnot, yeah.
0: Yeah, and he's just like, the, you have to, I only work with guys who like women. (laughs) I don't work with guys who see them as objects. And that, I like, that seemed like it was probably... I mean, I know it was less than 20 years ago, but it seems like it was probably not something that was seen... would have... that would have felt fairly progressive at the time.
1: Yeah, well, especially that time period was so strange because... There was so much like anti PC culture going around, uh, right? And at the time period, and it was just a really weird vibe during the Bush era. There was so much stuff that went on. I remember with like the Dixie Chicks and uh, people being upset about them, and there was a really incredibly toxic culture around women celebrities, specifically Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton all around in the same time period. And like that time period felt so toxic, um, with max masculinity at the time period for me. And so for me, the movies that were out at that time period, this one felt like a breath of fresh air compared to those things. But I think that if you were to release it now, it probably wouldn't feel quite the same way because so much has changed about just the culture and environment that the movie would be released in.
0: I think that's like, if I, if I had, we talked for a little mermaid about the difference between paranoid and reparative. Yes. Viewing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think like, if I had been able to be, if I had been able to live more in the reparative viewing, for this movie then I would have been in a lot better place to enjoy it and the places where it did feel progressive and I was able to get to that place like I did like that a lot and there are some scenes that we'll talk about that I did that I did just like a lot but it's just it was just hard for me to not slip back into into that paranoid mindset
1: yeah it's definitely and I uh, as I was watching that that's kind of how I felt some of that as well because you know, I was trying to think about the context of it, and there's there's a few things that it's a little bit invasive of, like, of uh, personal boundaries at a couple of times. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of scenes where, like, one of the scenes that stands out to me that I felt really weird about and didn't like very much was the scene at the bar that, like, he goes and talks to that one woman that's surrounded by the group of guys and then, like, gives her some money and then she follows after him. That one I felt a little bit weird about. And then when he approaches Sarah Milas, the the female lead, at the bar and then kind of jumps in behind the one guy that's coming to to pick her up, that felt a little bit weird as well to me. But then one of the things that I remember at this time period that really I loved was there's this moment at the beginning where he's talking to, like, all those different guys and he's like... You know, when she's talking to you, listen to her and then, you know, don't stare at her mouth or don't think about, you know, what's going on later. Listen to the words she's saying. And then when you respond, you're going to be able to respond intelligently. And at the time period, like that felt like a big step. I don't know. if I, I don't know how to communicate that, but uh, that is not the way that the culture at the time period kind of uh, treated women. Uh, and so it felt like it felt like a big deal to me when I watched it.
0: Yeah. I know we're messing with our order a little bit here, but I actually really liked his first scene with with her at the bar. I thought the... Um, I thought him... I mean, it was like his motivations were clear, and that's that's a little suspect. But I think the idea of, like, saving someone from a conversation that they don't want to be in, I think that's a really nice thing to do and then the he did not put pressure on her in that scene and that she would like he left before she wanted that conversation to be over i did bump a little bit on him on the lie of him having gotten information from the bartender on what she was drinking yeah, that's specifically but. the
1: thing that I bumped up against was uh, when he gets the drinks and goes over there before the other guy shows up. Because mm. he's like, yeah. it, she's sending signals that she's not interested. Yeah. And then he's like, you know what, I'm just going to schmooze my way in and it'll be fine. Uh, but then it gives us this, uh, in film terms, sometimes we call this like a kicking the dog moment. Where you have somebody that's so like, like cartoonishly evil that it's easy to put someone up next to them and make them look good. So the guy comes up yeah. to pick up on her and he's just like cartoonishly bad and Will Smith swoops in to rescue her. So it's easy to make him look good in that moment, but I think what happened beforehand, I don't know. It's it, it feels a little bit weird to me there.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. I had forgotten about that that moment. I was more just thinking about their that scene between the two of them which I thought was one of the one of the most charming scenes that they had together and I thought it was a pretty nice meet cute
1: yeah that that part i actually do love a lot especially when he's like and then when she says and then he's gonna like you know ask her all about her career and be all interested. And says no then he's gonna go on his way and they'll probably be fine um and then he walks away and that i thought that was great that's one of my one of my more favorite parts of the film
0: yeah it's it's really nice uh so we're gonna get into personnel and stats here in a minute but before we do that we should take a quick moment for our uh favorite segment which is our drink segment <laughs> we have two drinks that are that are name checked here uh, we have a gray goose martini and an apple teeny and do you have any sense what a gray goose martini is none I assume it has an olive in it it probably does because martinis typically have olives in it and I think it does in this In the like the cups in the scene have olives in it. See, I nailed it. Do you know? But that's the extent
1: of my knowledge. That's literally it.
0: Do you know what a martini is?
1: It's a drink that has an olive in it. Zach, this is as much as I know.
0: (laughs) All right. So a martini is a drink. So one of the nice things about a martini, if you're if you're someone who likes alcohol, is a martini is a classic cocktail that really just has. two ingredients. And so you really can taste the alcohol. And it can be made generally two ways. You can make it with vodka and dry vermouth, or you can make it with gin and dry vermouth. And then once you've decided on your ingredients, the typical way to make a martini is you stir it which, uh, as President Bartlett has famously explained to us in the West Wing, I'll put a link in the show notes, when you stir a cocktail, the, it agitates the ice a lot less, and so you get a less watered-down drink and more alcohol. I prefer stirring my cocktails. James Bond famously orders a vodka martini shaken, not stirred, so he's getting a more watered-down version. Of his drink so great so that's our martini history lesson gray goose is just a type of vodka it's just specifying which brand of you want to be the lead in your in your drink
1: excellent yeah that's great
0: and it's a i believe it's a mid to top shelf vodka and i think this this makes sense like If you want your drink to taste like alcohol, you want to have (laughs) control over what that alcohol tastes like. So it's a, it's a classy drink. I would argue it's a classier version than James Bond's drink. So nice, there you have it. Very good. And then that contrasts with the apple tini that Jerkface make Jerkface thought she was drinking, Uh, an apple tini is exactly what you would imagine it to be. It's a drink that's made to look like a martini, but it has apple schnapps in it and it's generally considered to be a girly drink because girls are not manly enough to to drink the the real heavy hitters. So that's that's the implication there, which you probably picked up on, but now you know a little bit more about
1: some of the, the signals that are being sent in that one. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: On, along, on the notes of the drink section, there is uh, a drink in this film that I can speak to, surprisingly. Oh, yeah? Yes. There is a moment where he chugs half a bottle of Benadryl. Oh, my after God. Having, <laughs> after having an allergic reaction to some seafood. And, you know, as someone with allergies that has had some severe allergic reactions in my time period... You know, I have had to drink quite a lot of uh, Benadryl in some occasions. I do not recommend chugging half a bottle of Benadryl the way that he does because, you know, that scene where he is extremely out of it, uh, very wasted, acting very strangely, Is a, that's the way that it will happen to you if you drink that much Benadryl, but it might also kill
0: you. So <laughs>
1: I do not recommend doing those things. <laughs>
0: Hey, but at least you won't die itchy. Uh,
1: you will not die itchy. You will be unconscious, though. And, I mean, I think it's pretty strange that he wakes up before she does the next day. Because after that much Benadryl, listen, I would have slept for probably 20 hours straight. Um, and that's not an exaggeration. Because, whew, Benadryl will... As the saying goes, you can't sneeze
0: when you're in a coma. Hey, you you thought that... <laughs> uh, does the saying say that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You you thought you had primed me incorrectly for this movie not having uh, some sort of supernatural element. But clearly, he is immune to the greater powers of Benadryl. And he's also pretty strong because he was able to just, like, take Vance down at the restaurant. So true. I, I think there's some superpowers going on A here. A little
1: bit of supernatural powers there, for sure.
0: Yeah. Okay, personnel and stats. So... This movie, I don't know exactly why, but it had a range of a budget, so 55 to $70 million, and then a box office total of $37.6 million. so that was... I'd say that's pretty good. I don't know, what do you think? Do you think you would have been happy with that for your rom-com... Return on investment uh,
1: for a rom com return on an investment that is incredible. That's a very very good uh, return. Usually, what you'd expect for a rom com in that budget, you would expect to make probably a hundred and twenty to a hundred and fifty. So it's nearly three times that.
0: Yeah, it's really good. This this ended up as the number ten movie of the year, actually. Which, for a movie that I had not heard about before, we. you suggested for doing it suggested doing it for the podcast i was pretty surprised to see it make the make the top 10 uh not only is it in the top 10 for the year it is the number three
1: rom-com in the box office of all time behind my big fat greek wedding and what women want sorry that one tasted weird coming out um it has mel gibson in it sorry that's that taste again they but. could
0: just watch hitch it tells you what they want they just want you to listen
1: yeah exactly so huge a huge romantic comedy uh, in the box office and there has not been anything as big as hitch since hitch came out for a rom-com uh the closest is crazy rich asians which you had mentioned earlier
0: woot 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 yeah i love that movie <laughs> the, really quickly so the other movies that Uh, that I wanted to mention that were in the top 10 this year. So at number one, we had Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I believe that's the fourth one. At number two, we had Star Wars 3. And it is uncanny how many Star Wars years we have hit now. I think we hit Phantom Menace. We hit this one. We hit Star Wars in 77. And then we hit... What was what was eighty? Strikes and of the Jedi? Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just uh, just two more to go of the well of those first two trilogies. Nice. Anyway, and then we'll be able to cross them all off, and we'll we've probably never mentioned Star Wars on this podcast. <laughs> and then number number nine was Batman Begins, which uh, we mentioned earlier in the Dune podcast, which I love. It's a phenomenal film. So, yeah, I love that one. So, one of the things that I wanted to talk about the so it is mentioned at the top of the movie. I think it's the first thing that the movie shows. So, this is produced by Overbrook Entertainment, and Overbrook Entertainment was a was is a film studio that's was headed by Will Smith and James Lasseter. and they you know Will Smith will. Well, actually, why don't you give us a little bit of the rundown on Will Smith, and then I'll talk about the production company.
1: Yeah, so at the time that this came out, Will Smith was the most bankable star in Hollywood. He was a huge star, and he had a lot of big films that came out before 2001. So some of the things that he did, he did the thing he's most famous for, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was a phenomenal TV show, one of my favorite TV shows. And one of the most beloved TV shows ever, and that opening sequence, the the title song is, you know, people put a lot of effort into memorizing that title song. He also had a rap career that went up until 2005, which is when this came out. And then the films that he did after Fresh Prince of Bil- Bel- Bel-Air, but before this one were, there are a few that he did, but the big ones he did, Bad Boys, Independence Day, Men in Black, Enemy of the State, Wild Wild West, and then Legend of Bagger Vance. All leading up until 2001 where he started this production company. And that is a lot of... Some of those films are very good. Some of those films are extremely bad. All of those films were major box office successes. And like tremendous box office successes. And so just an incredible career. But then... He, he has some other ones that I just love once he starts this production company and I'll let you take off from there to talk about that.
0: Yeah, I think, it's, um, I think it's really cool that he was able to take the success from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Independence Day and Men in Black and all of those and also his rap career and he, he said, you know, I want to start my own movie company and I'm going to make projects that are important to me. And projects that I think I will have a harder time getting produced elsewhere. And I don't really want to fight with other people on how to get them produced. So me and my buddy James Lasseter were we're gonna do them. So Overbrook Entertainment, this is their so they in the aughts they had twelve movies. In the twenty tens they had nine movies, and then in the twenties they Ha- currently have eight movies um, so as of now they have 29 movies that have either been released or in production and I wouldn't say that all of the movies are great and I wouldn't say that all of the movies that I've seen on that list are great but I've watched a good number of them and even the ones that are not like, In my top tier of movies, there are movies that are interesting and movies that I'm glad that I watched and movies that had a clear point of view and were trying to say something, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely.
1: There's some movies that are on there that are among my favorites. I love Will Smith as an actor and things like I really loved Seven Pounds and I'm Legend uh, and The Pursuit of Happiness. And, you Mm -hmm. know, there's some other ones that I didn't love quite as much, but... like you said, they're interesting. Hancock is on there and, you know, the Karate Kid and, uh, you know, there's like Concussion and Suicide Squad. I don't know if that's all on Overbrook Entertainment, but...
0: I don't think those are. Yeah, Suicide I Squad, think suicide is, suicide Squad
1: is not. I think the other ones are. But, yeah, he just... It's a lot of fascinating work that he's done. And he just barely had a film come out that was... Overbrook Entertainment, in which he is getting a lot of Oscar buzz, which is called King Richard, which is also on HBO Max, and people want to go watch that one uh, to see a little a little Will Smith connection.
0: Yeah, uh, so the movies leading up to leading up to Hitch that Overbrook Entertainment did. So they did Ali in two thousand one, which uh, Will Smith got nominated for an Oscar for. Yeah, and in two thousand four they did iRobot, Robot, which. Uh, You know, for episode two of this podcast, we talked a little bit about Dune and then a lot about Foundation. So (laughs) why don't we spend a lot of time talking about iRobot on this podcast?
1: Yeah, it wasn't very good, though. So, yeah, I don't know.
0: I, I have not seen it because I heard it was not very good. But it was one... Like, I read the book before... as the movie was getting ready to come out i was really excited for it the book is so good reviews were bad so the book is so good good and the
1: movie is just does not even attempt to adapt it anything close to what the book was about so
0: yeah that's sad and then in 2004 saving face which i have not seen and then in 2005 hitch so this was just just their fourth movie still finding finding their sea legs as it were Do you have anything else that you want to say about Overbrook Entertainment?
1: No, I don't. Well, yes, one other thing. So one of the things that it seems to me, and I can't speak too much to the motivations here because they haven't come clear on this one, but the last film that he did before doing Overbrook Entertainment was the film The Legend of Bagger Bagger Vance, in which he was alongside Matt Damon, and is just not a good movie and is very roundly critiqued by many different people, but especially by Spike Lee. We had talked about when he coined the term The Magical Negro, and he was, he had talked a little bit about Stephen King in his talk about this, but the movie that he hit on the most was The Legend of Bagger Vance and Will Smith's performance. And he did not like that film, and it was just, uh, his performance was critiqued so much in that film. Um, And one of the things that you see From the films that they started up afterwards is it seems like they are consciously trying to pick things that are going to represent black people specifically in a better light than what Will Smith was in in The Legend of Bagger Vance. And it seems to me like he a big part of starting this production company was to control the kinds of roles that he was getting and do things that he actually believed in a lot more.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Do stuff you believe in, especially if you have the money and the professional capital to to do it. I think that's great.
1: And then the only last thing, small thing, is that for the Academy Award that year, he went up against Denzel Washington in Training Day. And, you know, (laughs) uh, he had a great performance in Ali, and (laughs) you're just not going to beat Denzel Washington in Training Day. That was an amazing performance, an all-timer. So too bad for him i guess so
0: (laughs) too bad uh how how will he ever put put food on his plate (laughs) for sure and then really quickly i did want to mention kevin james who uh is in this movie and the only reason i wanted to mention him is because i was a little surprised when i was looking at his imdb that this was only his first movie with a lead role it was only his second feature film he was extremely well known by this point because he had done i don't know like 200 maybe 300 episodes of king of queens and everybody loves raymond at this point but he he really hadn't made it into into movies yet so this (laughs) uh will smith took a chance on him i guess yeah
1: and i think it paid off i think kevin james does a really good job in this film i think he's lovable and you know, it's a he fits the role really well. Unfortunately, he falls into a hole of you know very lowbrow, campy films, especially with the Paul Blart cop franchise. Not too long after this, which is, and you don't see Kevin James too much in films anymore. But I did like this one, his first his first major film outing.
0: Yeah, I think it's a little easy to underrate his performance in this movie and some of it I think is probably on the writing but I think that kind of character could easily come off as kind of gross and schlubby but I don't like there were maybe a couple moments where I felt that way about his character in this movie but mostly I just felt like he was pretty lovable and even though he was tricking Allegra into going out with him I still was rooting for him which yeah, I, th- I think that speaks a lot to his affability and charisma in this movie. I agree. Allegra helps, too, because she's clearly into him, which is nice. Yes,
1: yeah. I like her performance, too. I think she's great. So.
0: Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say in this section, or should we start talking about some scenes? Let's get to some scenes. All right. So our first scene is this trip to Ellis Island, or their first date... And before we talk about this, let's talk a little bit about the scene that precedes this one, which is the... So we'll put this all together. So we started with their meet-cute in the bar, which we talked about, and I really like that interaction. The the walkie-talkie at work, though, was that was a Oof. big, 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 big turnoff for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, me too, on this one.
0: Yeah, um... The I mean, fortunately, it works out. Like her coworkers are all great and nice. I do not know if you can hear the wind or not, but it is just going absolutely ballistic outside. I'm sorry, there's a it's a twister. Um, what was I saying? You're talking about
1: the walkie talkies.
0: Oh yeah, fortunately, like her coworkers are cool with all of this. But I did not believe that the personality that they had set up for her would have not been 100% mortified to be having this conversation over, essentially, speakerphone.
1: Yeah, and the, the other thing, it doesn't seem like she's comfortable with it from my perspective, and in a lot of ways, it feels like by using the walkie-talkies and delivering it and making such a big spectacle of it, he's kind of forcing her into into this date that she's not really wanting to go on uh so Mm -hmm. i i i bounced off that one pretty hard as well
0: yeah so then we get to the actual date where they're gonna show up at the at the jet skis and uh, i feel like this scene just kind of runs the gamut for me of the movie i think the jet ski stuff is really nice i think Planning something for someone, I think that's, I think that's cute. I think that can be cute either way, regardless of gender. I think people generally like to be surprised as long as it's a nice surprise. So if someone's gonna plan something for you that's new and exciting and maybe you haven't done before, I think that's really nice. Waking up at seven a.m. for a lot of people, maybe not so nice, but. Uh, Jet skis are fun, and the uh, yeah, I think I think it I think it's a nice date idea. Then the jet skis die, and there's a, there's this scene where he's like, ah, my jet ski died. Come on, take me on yours, and then let me drive. Which the I I still don't really know even on rewatch whether we're supposed to think the jet ski really died or whether this is an act. Uh on... it is
1: the, the jet ski really died. I, I think I can speak to that it... pretty confidently. Yeah. Um Okay. Yeah.
0: And then he kicks her while he's trying to get onto the jet ski and so the question that I have for you is what is the story that this movie is trying to tell about our protagonist hitch's character development. So one option that I had considered was he's really good at helping other guys find love. He's really good at giving them advice and telling them what to do, but he's unable to take his own advice. And so the suaveness that he's able to teach other guys, he thinks he has, but he actually does not have. And then the other journey that I considered was he learns that the date doctor stuff that he's doing is actually wrong and it's false and he's not allowing guys to be who they should be. And at the end of the movie, he learns that he also has to be who he should be in order to find love.
1: Yeah. So I don't think, I think both of those are valid ways to look at this, but I don't think that's, the way that I would interpret his journey. And I, I think to kind of look at this, you have to go back to that flashback that he talks about where, you know, he was in love with somebody and he was a little bit too overbearing, came on a little bit too strong. And then he feels like he's destroyed his relationship because of something that he's done wrong. And he specifically says in that scene where he shows up at the, at the car and he's knocking on the window and he says, just tell me what I did wrong. Just tell me what I did wrong. Uh, And the guy's like, oh, you're doing it right now. And I think he takes that on himself so strongly that he decides he's going to never let himself be hurt like that again. And in order to do that, he's going to build up these walls around himself, which are these rules that he puts into place about controlling romantic encounters. uh, So that he can always make sure that he's approaching them from a place that he never exposes himself in a way that it makes him vulnerable. And by never making himself vulnerable, he can make sure that he never gets hurt. The pro- So what goes happens in this date to Ellis Island is that everything that he has set up so that he can control the situation in order to not be vulnerable falls apart. So all his controls mm. just come to complete disaster. And because of that, he's forced to be vulnerable and lose his controls, which is what Sarah's character ends up... Falling in love with is not what he did with any of the dates and all the horrible, stupid mistakes that he made. But it's that he's vulnerable after everything's fallen apart and after everything's a disaster.
0: Ooh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and it, li- we'll talk about it because we have this final scene, but it definitely lines up with the whole being alive sentiment at the end of the movie. Yeah. The And then, so the other thing that this scene sort of especially this section on the jet ski is i feel like and especially when i was going back and re-watching the scenes is i feel like there is unfortunately some tonal confusion in this movie i feel like we're not always in the same movie i feel like there's sometimes humor that does not it just doesn't fit with the rest of the movie and i think there's a really good example here where he kicks her in the in the head uh kicks her in the head and then he essentially does a cartoon dive off of the jet ski and it is not it is such an exaggerated dive that is unlike anything else that he does in this movie and it doesn't line up with his real concern and mortification that he would and should have after kicking her in the head and the fact that he dumped her into the Hudson that it just was like it took me out the first time and it took me out when I re-watched it as well I was like why I don't understand why they decided to keep that in the movie
1: I don't know it's it's a bit of physical comedy so I think that might be a, a part of why you're bouncing off of it I love that I, I love when he kicks her in the head because he's being so, like, macho and it's so dumb. Uh, but he wants to keep the mm-hmm. secret of where they're going, but at the same time, she's like, no, just, like, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be so egotistical and so, like, chauvinist. Accidentally kicks her into the head. The whole thing's falling apart. She's all wet now. Um, he dives in after her, and it's just, I don't know. It, it feels to me like when he dives in, he's just lost all control of the moment and just does this, like, weird dive into the hudson and now they're both all wet and the whole thing has fallen completely apart and then the cut they do afterwards where they're icing her head i don't know i really enjoyed that part of the film
0: hmm, funny mm-hmm. uh i really like the scene with her and the the curator who's going to give them the tour i think they have really good chemistry yeah they do the line where he's like yeah I use him on my back <laughs> and she's like uh, no, I don't want it. And he's like, oh, that's a fresh one. Don't worry. I think that's just a really cute scene. I wouldn't be surprised if they're friends in real life because they really play off each other really well. Yeah. Or if be, if they became friends on set.
1: Yeah. Whereas Will Smith and Eva Mendes' chemistry, I don't think is like, you know, the best for a romantic comedy, but the security guard, the, agree, they, yeah. they, they played that really well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and then this scene finishes with... Oh, the... The section where they're in front of the kissing post, and he does the bit of how how long is a long enough time to get a kiss, and then he like jumps out of frame and then jumps back and he says is that long enough? I thought that was like one of their moments of best chemistry in the film. I, I thought he delivered that bit really well. I thought it was a good bit. Uh, it was one of the few times that I like laughed out loud in the movie. Uh,
1: I love that scene. That's one of the things that I uh, that I've that I quote afterwards
0: uh does this count as a long absence yeah yeah it was fun this is cute and then of course this everything backfires where he has this grand reveal of having found her grandfather in the travel log but her grandfather was i don't know like what a serial killer or something that they're embarrassed about and so she breaks down in tears
1: and I love her performance when she cries because she's, like, crying and you're like, oh, it's so emotional. And then she does this weird thing with her hands where she's like, Ugh! Uh! and then, like, looks like she's going to throw up or, like, attack the thing and then runs off. And when he says, I saw that going differently in my mind, you mm-hmm. know, it's just – that's one of my favorite moments as well. And I don't know. I don't know how you felt about this scene, but I love this scene. I adore this scene because – it falls apart so spectacularly badly and just goes to show mm-hmm. that, that all of this control that he's putting into his relationships is useless and it's, um, it, you know, it's he's not doing what he thinks he's doing.
0: Yeah, so th- this scene, the the last part of it didn't work quite as well for me because, the, like, regardless of whether she was close with her grandfather or not, I don't think there's a world nowadays where i would view this as cute like this is just like this is someone he hasn't ever met before i think it's just creepy like regardless of whether she oh that's you know would have been happy by the outcome um so i i was in i was in full-blown paranoid view stalker 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 at this point yeah
1: and i yes i it definitely is and i i I kind of... So what I like about it is that he's put all this work in, and it's... He's trying to control the situation, and it doesn't work and completely backfires. It yeah. Work, yeah. So I like the complete failure of the philosophy. And I think that's what, what it's going for. And I think that, like, it's trying to play up that it's cute, but I think the film is not trying to make us think that it is cute. I think it's trying to give us that sense of irony like it you know, he thought he was doing this big romantic gesture and it's the kind of thing that if you saw, you'd think it was a big romantic gesture, but actually it is a big just complete stumble and can fall apart. And I think part of what they're showing here is how this kind of maneuver is kind of creepy and will often backfire on you because you don't know the context of a person's life.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's one of those places where if i'd been able to get out of my head or able to and it's hard cuz as you said like we're watching the movie for the podcast so it's basically impossible to live out of your head otherwise we just won't have anything to say then i probably would have been able to find this moment a little a little better or find his journey the, the journey that you were able to outline for me.
1: It's, it's possible. I've also seen it a bunch more times. And so when I see this scene, I have the benefit of knowing where he's going. Yeah. So that might be part of it too. Do you have anything else you want to say about this scene? That's it for that scene for me.
0: All right, let's move on to the next scene, which is yours. Yes,
1: my favorite scene of the film. This is where Will Smith with his Alex Hitch character is setting up uh, uh, Kevin James, Albert Brenneman, on a date with Allegra Cole. And they are going to some kind of fashion show. I can't remember. Or an art show? Maybe it was an art gallery. I can't remember exactly. I think it's
0: an art gallery for yeah. uh, Maggie.
1: Yes. I, I can't remember. Some kind of show of some kind. Uh, Maggie's show. And so they're setting up this date. And what I like about this scene, you have this thing where they're kind of explaining what he's going to do. And then it cuts to him doing it at the date. Uh, and it cuts back and mm-hmm. forth between the different advice that Hitch is giving him. So he gives him advice, like, that he needs to she, he needs to show that he can be her escort and, like, be with her and not be intimidated by all her famous friends. And to shake their hands and then, like, show that he has something to, to give. Uh, he gives the advice that the first date is all about Maggie, the best friend, because uh, the best friend has to sign off on all relationships. And so uh, to put a, a lot of effort into impressing the best friend and then they get to the part where he they're going to have to dance. And so he explains, you know, he's he says I have got dancing covered. This is the one area I don't need advice on. And he plays some music for him says, "Well, I got to be a I uh, got to be thorough, so show me the dance moves you got." And goes into these just ridiculous dance moves, the Q tip, uh, tossing the pizza, mm-hmm. And all of these different ridiculous dance moves that he does, and they're so bad. And Will Smith comes over and just kind of slaps and, you know, says, don't ever do that again. Uh, gentle slap. And he teaches him how to dance this, you know, very controlled, very safe dance that he teaches him. But my favorite thing of the scene is that when he gets into the actual dancing, and he's there with Allegra Cole and all the photographers are there. As soon as, as soon as she turns her back, he goes out into all of those crazy dance moves once again until she turns around and he's back to the little safe dance and the photographers catch him and uh I I don't know. That's the scene. I love it.
0: Yeah, I mean this is probably like the a number one movie why this movie didn't work for me because I mean the listeners might not know. You you know you came to came to our wedding. Uh, I'm strictly anti-dance and this movie is very pro looking like an idiot while you dance and that is just not a message that I can abide. I don't think that's I don't think that's safe for the children. <laughs> gotcha yeah I mean I uh, I love the way that this movie
1: goes about this though because, it portrays this of like the control of the dance and you don't want to look stupid and so just do this this is your home you didn't do this very gentle dance but it just really encourages the self-expression and letting yourself go and i don't know i really love that about this film
0: yeah no i'm being tongue-in-cheek obviously but also not tongue-in-cheek in the sense that like this it like it, it's hard. Intellectually, it's hard to disagree with that message. People should be themselves and should be able to let themselves go. But because I'm like messed up in my head, that message does not resonate with me with dancing because I'm just like, why? Why would you want to look like an idiot? Like that's that is not that is not a safe or happy place for me. And so even though I recognize that's ridiculous yeah. and know that that's wrong, it is not. Like, my brain won't let me enjoy that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally It's me. I'm I'm
1: the broken one. Yeah, uh, it totally makes sense. And uh, for me, I love dancing. And I love dancing even in public. And, you know, but it's tricky navigating the social norms of dancing. And that's one of the things that Mm -hmm. I love about this one. Because, and I think that's kind of what you're getting at, though, is that people do so badly at navigating the social norms of dancing that you know from a from an expected value point of view there's just basically no value in dancing because you're going to make yourself look dumb so often and so much of the time that it's just a risk that's usually not not worth taking from the perspective of like social capital or any of those things i like doing it anyway
0: yeah uh it seems mortifying to me i don't a lot of people do i yeah
1: I'll, I'll dance for my students at school. I get up and dance. I'm the teacher and, you know, I'll dance. I'll, you know, uh, turn on some music and dance and they think it's hilarious. And sometimes they'll even uh, make TikTok videos of me dancing poorly and, you know, post them online and whatever.
0: I don't mind it. One thing that I really would have liked from this scene, and I, I have to wonder, because I think the movie comes in just about at two hours, maybe like 10 minutes under. And I wonder if it was cut for time because they had something that they really wanted i really wanted just like another 45 to 60 seconds with him and maggie yes like i just needed like because especially because he put his foot in his mouth by assuming maggie was a woman um like i just wanted just a little bit more to see him succeeding in that area yeah um and this isn't an, I, I think that would have been really nice yeah and this
1: is another thing that from the time period i think is stood out a little bit more because having so there are four four gay characters with names that have major interact actions with the main characters in this in this film you could call them four gay best friends at the time period that's a <laughs> lot and fgbf yeah it's and Nowadays, you wouldn't look at that as being so. You wouldn't look at that as being particularly progressive. Like you'd want some some LGBT main characters, but at the time that was a big step. You know, it's a. You had I think Will and Grace was going at the time period, but you know it was not a safe time to be a queer person at that time period. And the fact that you have so many of them in this film, that are portrayed uh, positively, I think, you know, I think there's value in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to talk about this in cleanup, but we can talk about it a little bit here because it does contrast a little bit with... I think this is a very standard style scene for the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, but it does contrast a little bit with the scene where Hitch is uh counseling kevin james on the kiss yeah where i think i think like all of the humor of that scene i think is just wrapped up in homophobia just how funny it is that two guys are pretending to kiss and then will smith being disgusted when he actually does kiss him oh see it's that's interesting
1: because i didn't read it that way Oh, really? yeah, no, I didn't read that scene that way because uh, the way that I read it was, you know, they're enacting this and Will Smith to me seems perfectly comfortable acting out this scene. But his issue when he gets to the end is that that Kevin James broke the consent boundary that he went all the way in the 9010 rule. And mm. so so for me, the way that I read this scene and the w- way that I saw it at the time and every time that I've ever seen it is not that it's wrapped up in home. Actually, I've seen it as pretty, um, pretty queer-friendly from my perspective. But the, the conflict for me there has always been about this idea of consent and how you're communicating the consent of a kiss using body language and those kinds of things.
0: Yes, I think that I, I do agree with you and I, I actually did write down that they buttoned this scene very well, The the button of the scene being about consent was what I liked about it. But I think just the general humor of the situation of like, practice the kiss on me. I think it was hard not to imagine a movie theater in 2005 and everyone thinking it was so funny that two guys were going to practice kissing. Yeah, that, that's,
1: I that's know, maybe, probably true. Maybe I projected it. So it's probably true that that's why the scene probably got a lot of laughs. And, but I don't know if that's the intention so much. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard for me to tell exactly. It, I think they're, I, I love the message that they're doing with the, with the kissing scene about consent. And essentially what it reads to me as is that Will Smith is saying, you need to get consent before you go to kiss someone. And so many guys don't do that. And kind of role-playing and reenacting that idea. Maybe it's just my perspective that I was pretty comfortable with with the two of them kissing in the first place. And, you know, I don't know, at the time period, I was kind of, like, understanding my own bisexuality a lot more. Sure, yeah. And so so maybe that's why, for me, it didn't read quite the same way.
0: Yeah, and maybe I'm just an expert on what's homophobic as a straight person. Uh,
1: possibly. Uh, I also saw it not in the theater, so that would affect, you know, I wouldn't have heard all these people laughing because of that reason. I would just saw it on my own. And I was like, oh, that's so wonderful. So, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure our listeners, if they watch this movie, probably have some have some thoughts on this. So definitely weigh in and let us know how, how you viewed it, for sure. Agreed. Sorry, I got us off course from the dancing slash first date scene. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about that one? No, or that we works. Move on?
1: We can move on from there.
0: Okay, I wanted to talk about the speed dating scene. I thought this scene was really fun. The So this is a scene where... Miss Mendez
1: is that her name? Eva Mendez. Um, she's Sarah Milas in the film. Her character is Sarah Milas.
0: Ah, uh, yes. I gotta write down the main characters' name so I don't do this every <laughs> damn show. That's what I do. I just
1: write the names down over here, so that's why that's why I know them.
0: I'm just juggling like three different things in notes, and y- you can't write everything you want. No, you write can't. Down. <laughs> and, um, so she goes with her friend to a to a speed dating place and. The, they're doing their little speed dates. And uh, there's actually some nice cameos here. I don't know if there are people that you would have picked up on Matt, but there's uh, Matt Servito is, or Servito is the one who eventually recognizes Hitch as the date doctor. He plays the FBI agent, which is a recurring role in The Sopranos. Uh, so that was kind of fun to see him see him pop up here at this point soprano like he would have been pretty famous or sopranos was pretty big at this point and he would have been in a lot of episodes so it was somewhat surprising to see him in such a small role for this movie and then joe lo who i know or truglio who i know from brooklyn 99 was the music connoisseur who opens the scene talking to Ava's friend about <laughs> the, the different classical composers that he likes. So that was kind of fun to see them. And this was, of course, long before Brooklyn Nine-Nine would have started. So he he would not have been a household name by this point, I don't think.
1: Uh, I do love that when he's explaining the different music to her. And she's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I like that interaction a lot.
0: Yeah, I wanted to have a conversation with him about the composers. That that seemed... yeah. That seemed interesting to me. So there's some, there's some interest, like cameos aside, there's some interesting stuff in this scene. So Hitch comes and breaks, breaks up the party and essentially sits down and confronts Eva. And the basically <laughs> says, hey, you ruined, you ruined my job. And you outed me, and that's not fair. And so one of the other things I wanted to ask you was, I'm not sure what the point of view is supposed to be here on Hitch's job. Because there's a part of me that's like, this scene makes a pretty strong case. Hitch makes a pretty strong case of, like, guys need need this and at the end he says look at this as an example of why i exist because you can't get out of your own way which seemed like a pretty damning thing for him to say and i couldn't tell even on the rewatch if this was something that we're supposed to think is like a message of the movie or if it's supposed to be something That he's saying in anger that he doesn't mean and is clearly wrong and is going to cause him to reconsider his business. Because I think they're both, like personally, I think they're both pretty terrible, both of their professions, the gossip columnist. And as we talked about, there are some parts of the The way Hitch works that I really like. And, you know, if he's teaching someone to be more confident about himself or teaching someone just to listen more and view women as people and think about them as human, I think that's really good. But when you're staging dogs escaping from elevators and yeah that's having a for me that's like one of the worst by ones by the where he
1: pretends to be i also <laughs> find it hilarious when he does that thing in the beginning and pretends to be hit by the car but it's one of the one of the most egregious examples because it's just an outright blatant falsehood and lie uh yeah. yeah
0: so 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 what do you what do you think the point of view is supposed to be on on these and what Hitch says at the end of this. I think
1: you're supposed to think that they're both a little bit right and both a little bit wrong. And I think this mm-hmm. because it's a standard scene in a romantic comedy where you have uh, the characters where there has been some kind of conflict that breaks them up. And then they're going to like discuss some of the themes and have a fight ab- about it and not agree at the end of it. Uh, but then have a revelation later on that kind of clarifies it and put, settles both characters into an area where they, where they can reconcile the differences. And that's a very standard scene across romantic comedies. So I I think you're expecting this scene to do that. And I think the formula kind of sets it up that way. Because one of the important things about romantic comedies is, is that it one of the tricks is that you it's a dual protagonist whenever you're doing a good romantic comedy uh and you won't you All want right. to be following both characters and feel empathy for them and see their perspective and go along with that and you also want them to make the strongest case for their perspective uh in both accounts and you have to have them get into a conflict at some point where the the two perspectives clash with each other in order to have the satisfying resolution where both of the two perspectives kind of become aligned later on. And so I think that's what this scene is trying to do. I don't think it's 100% successful. I agree with you that there's some lines in there that that don't quite quite land for me. But I do, I do think it's important that he's trying to make the strongest case for his side of the argument that he can at the moment.
0: Yeah, and I think in retrospect, I think you kind of are supposed to agree with his point of view here because he doesn't she ends up reconciling for her stuff where she um like her growth is she goes and she she apologizes to him and then he rejects her and then we'll talk about his growth in a, in a minute but i don't think he really i don't i think his growth is kind of separate from the professional growth and then you also have the moment where the friend basically <laughs> does a little a little leading for the audience where she's like Yeah, I think he's right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she specifically says, I kind of believe him. And uh, which is, I think the point of that part is more that the, uh, where he's saying that Albert Brennan is a good guy and he didn't work with Vance. And I think that's what she means by, I believe him. Mm. Yeah, but I also think that the the argument the film is making, it's not 100% sure of the argument at that moment and it doesn't really land for me until later on when he has the conversation with Allegra Cole on the boat, and I think that's where it gets wrapped up. Um, And I think they could have foreshadowed that or leaned into that a little bit better, but I don't think they 100% uh, understood the message they were trying to tell, to be perfectly honest.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That sort of lines up with with what I was thinking. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about this scene, or should we move on?
1: Um, Let's see. We can, yeah, we can move on. Let's go on to the next one.
0: All right, the last one's yours. So why don't you why don't you walk? Uh, us through? Yeah, also
1: one of my favorite films or, or one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie. Uh, Will Smith, you know, realizes that he's wrong after he blew off uh, Eva Mendes, and he goes over to her apartment to apologize. Um, I don't know question mark. It's a uh, it's. I mean, he. I think he's planning on apologizing, but he also has no idea what he's going to say. And he shows up her up at her door, knocks on the door. And just can't speak. He's at a complete loss for words. And then when he does talk, it just makes a complete fool out of himself. And then he has this moment where he says, you know, I don't have me on the other side of the door. And so he has her close the door so that he can talk from the other side and try to explain (laughs) his perspective. And I love this scene because it's so weird and so goofy. And he completely surrenders all attempts to control the situation and he just tells her i want to be miserable um and she has this weird reaction he's like i mean i want to be miserable because that's the only way that i can be happy it doesn't make sense and yet it makes so much sense for the journey that hitch has gone on and then she walks out with this guy and he's depressed and sad and he figures he lost so
0: well you know what it does make sense with though yes is it makes sense if you've seen and know company. Because this is the exact... Like, this is how company ends. (laughs) The Bobby, the protagonist, um, you know, has spent the whole show wondering if he should get married or she in the Broadway revival. And is finally like, yeah, I want someone to make me miserable. Yes, yeah. I want someone to help me survive being alive. And I I did have to... Like, it was so... I mean, maybe it's just like Sondheim just died and it's been like he's been all I've been listening to and we just saw the company revival. So I don't know if it's just because it was on my mind, but it just seemed so stark that I was like, but I I had to wonder if it was an inspiration for them in this moment or even just in that piece of dialogue.
1: I think probably it was. uh, And the reason why I think that is because the director was a dancer in musicals before becoming a film director so i i can only assume Mm -hmm. that what was his name tenant um is it kevin andy Andy tenant i can only assume that annie tenant was very familiar with sondheim's work, so probably there's a little bit of that going into this one and honestly i don't know there's probably some other parts of company that kind of fit in with with this film but I'd have to think think about that in more detail.
0: I mean, you could just you could just map Bobby's journey onto this, you know, with someone who is loved by all of their friends and isn't able to find love and kind of treats people of the opposite sex as objects and keeps people at a distance and doesn't let them in. Right. I mean, you could just map that story onto here and yeah. company's a little more vignette based, but there's a lot of vignette aspects to this movie, especially as you're following Hitch and all of his clients. And it's also pretty easy to imagine that there were more clients in the movie that would have given it a more vignette feel originally that ended up getting cut just to streamline everything or for length. Yeah, I
1: agree. I agree. It's a that's that's interesting. I I think there's there's gotta be a connection there. Regardless, he she leaves with this guy and he decides, no, he's going to chase after her anyways. And he's not going to give up on love. And he goes and jumps on top of the car, falls off of the car, and then gives his speech where, you know, he talks about how we're falling and we're just hoping that someone will be there to catch us. And bears his soul to her. And then you find out that the guy was her brother-in-law. Uh, and they were going out to meet her sister, you know, to as they were leaving after Whew. their brief stay at her apartment. So...
0: How far to it Yeah,
1: per- perfect timing. Though so it is lampshaded earlier in the film, she talks about how she has a sister that's married, and mm. that they're gonna going to be like around. So it's a it's lampshaded much earlier, but it's a, it's very subtle the when it's lampshaded because it's in his apartment when they're like discussing, uh, and he's high on the Benadryl. So mm. yeah,
0: yeah, probably unsurprisingly to you the The first half of this scene, I adored the everything you said with the um, door and him sort of having <laughs> a breakdown and talking to himself. And I don't have me on the other side of that door. Uh, very charming. Really let Will Smith show off uh, some of his some of his chops with his you know quick switches and whatnot. Second half of this scene where he jumps on the car. Yeah, I'm back into full full stalker mode. I'm like, yeah, oh no, yeah. <laughs> you can't, you cannot do that. And I don't know what
1: to tell you about is... that because it's just that's just romantic comedy structure like 101. It is, it is the chase yeah. after the the love interest to like give the final speech to bury your soul. I mean, every romantic comedy you ever watch is going to have essentially this scene. It's the you complete me scene. It's the uh, scene where, you know, in the wedding singer, he runs onto the plane and sings to her. Um, I don't know. It's it's over and over and over again.
0: I feel it's been a long time since I watched the wedding singer. But I feel like that one. Like he's not doing it amidst her saying no, which is the, the reason this car sequence is so like she's literally saying no when he jumps on the car you know (laughs) like well
1: uh uh, she's saying like no don't jump on the car but i don't think she's saying not to like i think (sighs) i think that she's wanting him to like chase her i don't know if that makes sense
0: i mean she clearly like in the world of the movie she clearly does because he has no
1: way to know that she uh, Yeah.
0: And we I don't think we like other than, you know, we know it's a romantic comedy and we're we know the structure of these things. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, movie movie wise, I guess the ends justify the beans. So I guess we're fine (laughs) there. But
1: yeah, I don't know. It's I get what you're saying, but I think it's a a critique of romantic comedies in general and not this specific movie. I don't know if that makes sense because because it's it does just a common. It's it's such a common trope. It's difficult to do a romantic comedy that doesn't have this, and if you do, then you're kind of subverting the genre. And so I don't know; it's it's a it's a tricky one to figure out.
0: Yeah, I don't. Next week, we just as a little teaser, we have a, another romantic comedy, which I don't remember if this happens. And we'll see. Not. So we'll we'll get to see. Yeah. It. Do you have anything else on this scene, or should we do cleanup? Uh, let's go to cleanup. Okay, I will. I will go first. Oh. Maybe the thing that I like the very least about this movie, and they did not have... I'm guessing you don't like this either, because they did not have to do it. And it is so frustrating and mean, is when his life is falling apart, and he's just been published in the newspaper, and he gets stopped on the street by the couple, and she says... Do you, did you set us up? Did you put like, yeah, are you the reason that we've been together for 20 years or whatever? He says, I've never seen this person in my life. See you later, Joe, or whatever his name is. And it is just like, you just destroyed that person's marriage for a cheap joke. And I get that your like life is falling apart, but you just ruined someone's life.
1: (laughs) Um, Really horrible.
0: Yeah. uh, Uh, that
1: part's not great. The delivery on it, though, is so funny because, like, the the joke is you know it has issues. Uh, I'm not arguing that, but Will Smith's delivery on it is so deadpan that that it that part is funny and it's. But when you think about the consequences, it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't hold up in that case.
0: No, I did not like it. Yeah, uh, which is fair. Do you, what do you have for cleanup? Um
1: Yeah, so the the kissing scene where they kiss on the, on the doorstep and he teaches her yeah. how to kiss. So this scene, they were originally going to shoot that scene in the apartment, in his apartment. But they were just like going along, traveling along the street. And they were like, actually, this would be the perfect place to shoot it. But they didn't have a permit to shoot. So they had to go up to the door oh, and no. knock on the person's <laughs> door and ask them if they could <laughs> shoot the scene. So they knock on the door and the person who opens the door is Sarah Jessica Parker from Sex and oh the goodness. City. So she opens the door <laughs> and they're like, oh, hi, Sarah. Um, do you mind if we shoot this scene on your doorstep? And she's like, yeah, that sounds great. It's awesome. So that's, that door that you see was at the time Sarah Jessica Parker's home.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, is one of the really fun things about Shot on Location in New York is... Uh, especially if you live here, it's like, ah, oh, I've been there. I've been yeah. there. <laughs> I know where that is. It's true. Wait, how did they How did they move 30 blocks in 10 seconds? <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that stuff's a little bit unrealistic.
1: Oh, also, uh, when we were watching this film um, and they see the apartment that Hitch lives in, uh, my kids were like, whoa, he's really rich. <laughs> and so, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know how to explain to them that in New York that's even richer than they thought. So
0: wow wait until they watch friends right yeah their mind will be blown <laughs> it's true i talked about something i didn't like i want to talk about maybe the part of the movie that i like the most so the before her friend early in the movie says well let me back up what's concern what's concerning is the gendered aspect of all of this this idea that like men are the only ones who get nervous and the ones who need help talking to women. And she has the line, her friend has the line early in the movie of why I wish there was a date doctor for women. And then it isn't really mentioned again. But then at the end of the movie, Hitch does play date doctor for her. And I think that is like the nicest moment of personal growth, professional growth that I think you get to see for Hitch, where it's like, oh, I can do this. I don't have to just do this for men. I can do this for women too. Like everyone is in their head and has trouble being themselves. And I can, I can help everyone do it. I don't have to just do it for men. And I do wonder if they were seeding that as as a potential sequel. So they were not
1: seeding it as a potential sequel. There were no plans to do a sequel afterwards. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of like people that are fans of this movie uh, wanting to have a sequel. And there's been a lot of people that were involved in this movie that have kind of wanted to do a sequel afterwards. Um, That's specifically set up with Hitch and him working with women. So I think your read is very good there on that scene.
0: Yeah, I, I really liked that. That was probably the... I said as I like kept thinking about this movie, I soured on a lot of it, but that was the part that like as I was thinking about it, I I liked more and more and more.
1: I also love in that scene that the grandma is in on the, the choking to death uh, thing, and then she saves her. Um, <laughs> I just... And the wink that she gives Hitch afterwards, the grandma.
0: Well, and one of the things I like about that is it it does found their relationship on a lie but it does not found it on a lie that either one of them is party yes. to so if either if it came out it wouldn't ruin their relationship yeah. like it, or it wouldn't ruin trust in the right. other one yeah. which i don't know if that's intentional or not but i think that's another nice way of showing professional growth i Mitch.
1: agree and then the the other thing that i'll say this film is a subversion of the de- idea of pickup artists and i think that the message in the end is that pickup artists are terrible and th- the stupidest mm-hmm. and awful and i like that it has that message because it could have totally gone the other way and i'm glad that the the message of this film is that men that are attracted to women should also like women
0: yes that's an... And men who are attracted to men should like yes. men, and women who are attracted to women should like women.
1: All of these things, yes.
0: I mean, people should just like people, unless they're unless bad. unless
1: they're bad.
0: Yeah. yeah. So don't like the bad ones.
1: Did you have other uh, cleanup things?
0: I did not. That was okay. It for me. We we were able to talk about a lot of it in our in over the course of the scenes. Which my was really...
1: my only last thing, and you probably hated this part, but I love the dancing over the credits and how terrible and wonderful it is. So I don't know. That's one of my favorite parts is just watching the credits and seeing Will Smith and Ava Mendez just just tear up the dance floor in the worst way possible.
0: I did not hate it. I was ambivalent towards it. Yeah. it like it did go on a little long. And I was like, is this over yet? But it wasn't mm-hmm. like Yeah, I didn't didn't hate it. But it it was not it is not physical comedy that is made for me. Yes.
1: So. Uh, and I just wanted more. So. So yeah.
0: That's it. That's all I got. There are outtakes? <laughs> uh,
1: uh, there probably are somewhere. I don't know. It's hard to find uh, behind the scenes stuff material for this film.
0: All right. So that will do it for Hitch. Thanks, as always, for hanging out with us. There was a lot of times we asked for feedback in this episode. So if you want to hit us up, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to write us something longer than a tweet, or if you just don't want the world to see all of the smart things that you're saying, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com, podcaststreamit, no underscores, no periods, no nothing, and uh, you'll be able to talk to us there. We would love to hear from you, and yeah, you know, we love talking about these movies, so we'd love to talk about them with more people. As I've said on the last couple episodes, we've been getting a lot of help on editing from our good friend and beta listener, David Stewart, a.k.a. Esturial. Uh, so thank you so much for your help, David. And then next week, we were going to watch a movie that was taken off of HBO in between when we planned the season and right now so we are no longer going to be watching hero but we are going to be watching crazy rich asians from 2018 and as i said earlier this is my highest rom-com on my flick chart and it's a movie that matt has not seen yeah so it's sort of we're we're reverse hitching hitching.
1: yeah very exciting
0: yeah we're divorcing
1: i love it Uh, I'm very excited for this one.
0: Yeah, I I think it'll be fun. You said it's something that's been on your to-be-watched list. Since it came out, um... yes. I just
1: couldn't get to the theaters to watch it, and then uh, just too many things on my to-be-watched list, so I'm glad to have an excuse to see it.
0: Yeah, hopefully that'll be fun. So that'll be next week, and do you have a closing question?
1: I do. Uh, So there is a scene in this film where Hitch goes, you know, to uh, to this date that he doesn't know anything about, And they go to a food rave where he tries a bunch of food and has a terrible allergic reaction and he blows up, you know, in comical proportions. So my question here is, what is your worst food experience that you've had?
0: Uh, My worst food experience that I've ever had.
1: And, you know, if there's something particularly traumatic that's, you know just trauma, you don't have to share it. But if, if there's something comical and, you know, good, you could do that. Uh,
0: I think... So... It's the only time I can really remember getting, like, food poisoning as an adult. And I had... I was working on Catch Me If You Can in New York City. And I went to... I had a couple days off and I went to visit my grandparents out in Pennsylvania and I just got, like, we went out to dinner, I think, to a diner and I got such horrible food poisoning and I could not, like, I I missed, I was mortified, you know, I was a music intern. This was a big deal to be working on a Broadway show or, you know, helping on a Broadway <laughs> show. I wasn't getting paid, uh, but I, like, I couldn't move without vomiting And so there was no way I was gonna get on a bus, much less be in rehearsal. And so I was mortified. I had to email my, um, you know, the guy I was reporting to and just be like, I'm so sick, I cannot make it in. And so I missed, yeah, I missed a day of rehearsal on the Broadway show that I was working on. And uh, Mary and I had just, had been on our, like, first date. Oh, jeez. Or I guess it was, I guess it wasn't even a date at that point, but yeah, we, and had plans to get dinner again and had to, had to move it because my, my tummy was too unwell.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out in the end. Um, apparently that's the secret to romance is a terrible, uh, food poisoning episode. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, you? my worst food experience this is when I was living in Chile and uh, I had I ate a lot of things that I had not tried before um, and some of them were delicious and wonderful. but the one that I did not like was boiled pig skin and it's where where Ooh. you take the skin of the pig and then you boil it. And that's pretty much it. Um, it is extremely tough, extremely chewy and tastes terrible. So you bite into it, and it's I, it, like, squirts juices into your mouth as you're chewing. Um, and then it tastes really bad. Like, it has a very strong taste. And you have to chew it for a long time in order to finish it.
0: Oh, brutal. Um,
1: it was...
0: It's also not kosher. Uh,
1: it is not, no. And it was the hardest thing I have ever tried. And I was a guest at someone's house so i didn't want to be offensive and not eat it so i just sat and worked on this for like 40 minutes this meal and in just absolute torture the entire time uh and Uh it was so miserable and so awful and yeah that was (laughs) it i Whew, that was a bad one. Um, every other eating experience I've had since then has been a pleasure. Compare in comparison, and after that experience, I just when I have a weird food experience, I just compare it to that in my mind, and I'm like, eh, hey, it's not that bad. Uh, and so I'll just eat pretty much anything since then, um, and pretty much nothing bothers me because I just it's not as bad as boiled boiled big big skin.
0: Ooh, yeah, it sounds sounds yeah, it was gross. So my question for you, so Hitch has a relatively disastrous first date uh, with with this woman that he ends up falling in love with and you know we've talked about our spouses on this podcast you know we're both happily married you've been happily married for uh somewhat longer than me but a few years what uh what is the worst what is the moment in your dating time that you look back on or the date that you went on that you look back on that you're like wow i'm glad i'm glad we got through that because i would not have expected this to end in marriage at that point
1: um so okay so i know the answer to this question but also uh i haven't really had a bit bad date with uh with my spouse so, um there's there's no date in there that answers this question. But the day that we met, um I had accidentally found myself uh dating two people at the same time. Um and
0: accidentally. It, okay, this was okay. accident
1: it was completely accidental. So what had happened is I was dating someone and then we had a a conversation to define the relationship and they said that they wanted to see other people. And I said, "Well, that breaks my heart, but you know, um Uh, that's, if that's what you want, then that's what we'll do. So, uh, what I didn't understand is that the, the conversation was actually that they wanted to see other people, but not for me to see other people. So, uh, I started dating someone else. Yes. Um, thinking, okay, well, I guess, you know, this relationship is over, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go see what else is out there in the world. So I started dating somebody else. Um, and then this new person that I was dating was showing in her class her new boyfriend and was like, "Uh, let me show you some pictures and showed pictures. And the girl that I was previously dating happened to be in the same class and saw those pictures and was like, wait, that's my boyfriend.
0: Oh, no. Yes, and
1: so... (laughs) and so it was a complete disaster uh and i got you know the the other girl broke up with me and i was like no you have to understand let me explain uh and it did not go over so well and then um you know there was like i don't know it was such a complete disaster and i I was like you said we were seeing other people so i was seeing other people like this is We had this communication. So, I don't know. It was all this terrible (laughs) stuff. And it was on the day of a choir concert at at college. So, like, we were performing. And in between, like, backstage, this drama was going on because I had choir with with the one girl. So, so all of this drama was going on. And it ended. And I was like, my life is in shambles. All my relationships are destroyed. Uh, What am I going to do? And then I just, like, there was, uh, you know... Lori was sitting over there across the way and I just went over and sat down and I said, hi, how are you? I'm having a rough night. And that's how we met. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so that is my answer uh, to that question.
0: Uh, that's pretty good. I think that's better than mine. Although mine is also pretty bananas. So Mary and I had started had started dating and then I had a summer gig and I went off to Alaska for four months. And then when I came back, I was working at Syracuse. Mary was living in New York city. I had gotten a job up in Syracuse and Mary came up to visit me for the first time in Syracuse. And I borrowed the head of the theater's car, my boss, the guy who employed me, uh, to go pick Mary up. And when I got in the car, it was like 10 miles like 10 miles left on the gas tank for the in in his car. And I was like, okay, no big deal. I like I leave myself a lot of time. Um so I have plenty of time. I'll go to a gas station and then uh I'll I'll, I'll go pick Mary up. So I went to a gas station, like I navigated my GPS at that time, uh, I did not yet have a smartphone, so I, it, was, it was like a GPS without internet, to a gas station along my route. I got to the gas station, and this probably will not surprise you, but it did surprise me, because apparently there are parts of the country where gas stations close at night.
1: Yes, that is true.
0: Uh, So this gas station was closed. Oh no! <laughs> and... I was not able to get gas. Oh, no. I was like, okay. The, the the bus station was not very far. So I was pretty confident that I had enough gas to go get Mary and get her back to the apartment. So I did that. I went to the bus station. I got Mary. I went back to the apartment. We went back to our housing. But my boss had to drive to the Adirondacks the next morning, which is like a, I don't know, four-hour drive or something. And he was already asleep. And I knew I couldn't, like, leave the car for him and say, oh, by the way, you have to get gas in the morning. So I knew we had to go out and get gas, especially if there was a chance that we might not be able to get to a gas station. So we loaded up in the car. You know, it's the first time I've seen Mary in four months. I'm like, sorry, we have to do this. We have like we have to go get gas. We found a gas station that we were pretty sure was 24 hours and we went there and I got there and I I knew that my credit card was turned off at the time because I had had fraud. But I had cash in my wallet because my credit card was turned off. So I assumed that any gas station that was open would also have an attendant. Oh, no inside and I would be able to pay for gas with cash, but this gas station did not have an attendant inside. (laughs) And so I was like we could we couldn't go anywhere else. And Mary had just got in and I was like, I am so sorry. Can I use your credit card? Like I'll just give you money. I didn't mean to make you come up here. And she was like, I left my credit card in the apartment. I didn't realize you didn't like I left my purse there. Oh no. And we, we cannot get back. And so I'm like, okay, this is no big deal. I will, I have $20. I will just ask someone if I can give them $20 for $15 worth of cash. No problem. First guy I go up to, giant SUV, tripped out SUV. I say, hey, I'm so sorry. My credit card is turned off. I just need a little gas. Can I give you $20 for $15 worth of gas? I swear to you, this guy turns to me and he says, do you have any PCP? (laughs) I said, I'm sorry. PCP, do you have any PCP? I was like, no, I do not. Do you have any cocaine? Oh, my gosh. No, no, I do not. And he was like, well, do you have any drugs? I said, no, I do not have any drugs. He said, well, then we cannot do business. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh, dear. I backed away. You know, here's this woman, this young woman that I'm very interested in. I have taken her to somewhere in the middle of the night. We are going to get stranded. This guy is yelling to me about drugs. And then... Behind us, this young, like, hotshot, probably, like, 19 years old sport car comes driving up. I'm, like, he's in there with his girlfriend. Go up. Same story. Hi, I'm so sorry. My credit card is turned off. Can I give you $20 for $15 worth of gas? And he does not understand. He's, like, why don't you just buy the gas? (laughs) I was, like, I don't have a credit card. He was, like, so you want to give me $20 for $15 worth of gas? And he said, yes. He says, okay, we can do that. Yeah, that's fine. Do you have a box cutter? <laughs> what? I said, what? what? Do you have a box cutter? And I said, no, I do not have a box cutter. And he's like, because there is this thing hanging off of my tire, and I cannot get it off. And I can hear it rattling around and hitting my car. I'm like, I'll look for a box cutter, but I don't think I do. He was like, okay, if you have one, man, that would be so great. That would just be so great. So I'm like, okay, I'll look for the box cutter. We did not have a box cutter. He did fill up the car, and we were able to get back. Stephen was able to make it to the Adirondacks. Mary and I did end up getting married for some reason, but I do look back on this. You know, she had just taken a six-hour bus, (laughs) and I take her on this escapade where it felt like we were going to get murdered. Oh, my God! And uh yeah so that's that yeah awesome <laughs> sorry that was a long story. A good story that though. was not the question i was planning on asking and uh i don't know that's where we ended up so anyway thanks for hanging out and we will talk to you next week bye bye